Amen. Luke chapter 12. If you'll grab your copy of Scripture, open to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab that uh, pew Bible in front of you, open to page 1200, and you'll be able to follow along. Certainly it would be a wonderful morning to follow along as we uh, uh, look at a passage of Scripture. Maybe if you're new to Bible study, maybe if you've never read through the Bible, then this would be a place that when you were reading, you would come to and you would say to yourself, I never knew that was in the Bible, followed by, what does that mean? And so we'll sort all that out this morning. As we have had such a wonderful time together in uh, Luke 12, this uh, passage, really this uh, sermon, if you will, as Jesus is teaching, begins in Luke 12 and goes all the way to uh, Luke 13, verse 9. It's a long uh, discourse. He's speaking to literally thousands upon thousands of people, and he is uh, going in and out of talking to the whole multitude and then to certain components of people within the multitude. And so today, uh, as we sort of reflect back on all that God has shown us thus far in Luke 12, uh, the, the, the question I would pose to you is, well, what exactly has God been saying to us as He has taught us? He, he began by talking about hypocrisy and the fear of God. He moved from there into uh, that we are to confess the Lord before men and not to be ashamed of Him. Then He got a little personal. He started dealing with our finances and how we tend to be greedy and self-serving with our resources followed by a teaching on worry and anxiety. And then last week, he brought our attention to faithful and unfaithful servants. And although each of those is teaching us a certain aspect of the character and nature of God, they're all teaching us something about ourselves. There's one overriding principle that's sort of uh, on top of everything that Jesus is talking about because he's speaking to us. And He's speaking to us in a way in which it reveals that He knows us. And what He knows about us is that we are a people who see what we want to see. We are a people who have great propensity and unbelievable skill at denial. We convince ourselves of things that in our heart we know aren't true. We do this in our marriages. We do this with our children. We certainly do this at work. And we perfect it in church. And what we do is we like to to see Jesus in a certain light, a light that makes us comfortable, a way that that we uh, fits into uh, our lifestyle, a way that's not going to cause too much much disruption to sort of the, the normal flow of life for us. And so we just convince ourselves that things are a way that in reality they're not. And what I would uh, urge you to do this morning before we dive into this passage of Scripture is just to, to say, Lord, I want to know the truth. That's what I want to know. I want to know the truth about who you are. I want to know the truth about what it is you say to me today. And then before we even talk about anything, I want to respond to that truth in accordance to the way you've spoken. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we humble ourselves before we receive it as the good and perfect gift that it is. 
totally inerrant and wonderful in every way. God, thank you so much for this gift, an opportunity we have to to see you so clear and wonderful, Lord. And we are grateful, grateful for it. So, Lord, will you give us spiritual ears that we might hear today? God, will you push away our tendency to make up things and deny the truth, Lord God, to convince ourselves of things that are not? And, Father God, minister to us through your Holy Spirit as only you can. We'll give you the glory, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the title of this message this morning is The Hallmark of Our Savior. And a hallmark is really a seal or a symbol. It's it's something to prove genuineness or that it is uh, authentic in nature. And, of course, this passage of Scripture does that about the Lord Jesus, but that's not why I entitled it that. The reason why I call this message the hallmark of our Savior is simply because this is a passage of Scripture you will never see on a hallmark card. I can assure you of that. This isn't something you're going to hear someone quoting in the hallways. There's no uh, cliches that contain uh, portions of what I'll teach you today. And probably, uh, you probably never heard anybody preach on it unless someone was preaching through the entire book of Luke. It's a very obscure passage of Scripture. It ought not be, and the reason it is is because we simply don't want to hear it. And so what we do is we develop for ourselves this wimpy, emasculated Jesus that really just drives me crazy. This Jesus that is is in heaven wringing his hands because the people that he loves so much won't come to him or they're they're resisting him and that the things that he wants to be done are not being done. And he we picture him as so powerless and so meek and so mild and so soft and sweet. I don't like that picture because it's not a true picture. Although there are aspects of our Lord that are so kind and gracious and caring and wonderful. But I also know that as your shepherd, it oftentimes our denial just really is is just there for the convenience of sin. And we want to believe that that's who Jesus is and only who Jesus is so that we can live our lives according to the way that we think. And it's days like today that come in stark contrast to what we would maybe conjure up about the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's start with the work of Jesus. Before I, I'm not going to read the whole passage this morning. I'm going to just take it apart bit by bit. And let's work through it. The work of Jesus, beginning Luke 12 and verse 49. Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Now let's just stop here. What I want you to see first about the work of Jesus is His suffering. I want you to see that Jesus begins this portion of Scripture by stating that that I have come, that I came. This is a present active tense, meaning this is not a past thing. This is that I'm here now. I've arrived on earth. He's giving us this declaration of His purpose, the purpose for His presence here among us on earth. And so as He's speaking to this crowd of people, He says, I have come... I am here now 
for the purpose of sending fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Now this phrase, I have come, this is the same phrase that we find in familiar passages of Scripture that we like to quote, like John 10.10 10, that says, I have come that they, have may, that they may have life and life more abundantly. It's the same phrase found in John chapter 12, I have come as a light into the world. But Jesus uses this phrase to announce that He has come to bring fire. Now, fire in the Bible always falls into one of two categories or sometimes both. Fire always represents either wrath or judgment. The wrath of God, the fire of God, it brings cleansing, but it, it, is, it is His wrath. And, and there, is, there is judgment and cleansing through judgment. So fire has a cleansing agent just like it has a refining capacity. But the nature of fire is such that it is... There are just certain things true about it all the time. Fire is always hot. It can't not be hot. It can't cease to be hot. It always has a profound effect on anything that it touches. Anything that is immersed in fire is going to be affected by that fire. And so Jesus is bringing wrath and judgment. And He says, how I wish it were already kindled. Now, what does He mean by that? Now... A kindle, I know to many of you that are 30 and under, you think it's something you read on. And for the rest of you, you just have to ask later about that. But Jesus is saying that this fire He wishes were already kindled. And to kindle something is the beginning of a fire. So it's not the culmination. The fire's not fully lit yet or fully going yet. It's just the beginning portion of the fire. You kindle it in the beginning. So what exactly does Jesus mean when He says that I've come to send fire on the earth, how I wish it were already kindled, that it were already beginning, but I have this baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Well, think back to Luke chapter 3, where Jesus says, I indeed baptize you with water. This is John the Baptist speaking. He says, I baptize with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and will gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you see, Jesus, before... Uh, he began his earthly ministry as John the Baptist was, was the precursor to Christ, the forerunner of Christ. He announced that there's one coming, that he would baptize with water, but the one coming was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So he was going to bring cleansing through the Holy Spirit and wrath through fire. And now Jesus is giving us the rest of the story. See, many people read Luke 3 and get confused about things and they think that they get all these crazy ideas about baptism from that Scripture. Well, that's because they didn't want to read all the way to Luke 12 and actually figure out what Jesus was talking about, what Jesus is doing. For behold, the Lord says in Isaiah 66, the Lord will come with fire and with His chariots like a whirlwind to render His anger and fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. Now, when will this baptism, this fire, when will this be kindled? 
What does Jesus mean? The beginning, the kindling of this fire. He means that it's going to be kindled at the cross. The cross is going to represent the beginning when He bears the full wrath of God upon Himself that in that moment is going to be the beginning of the kindling. So the fire is going to come. It's not going to be completed until the end, the great white throne judgment, where every rejecter of Christ will stand before Him and give account and be judged accordingly. And so it's, it begins at the cross, this kindling, and the fire will burn all the way until the final culmination where judgment will come upon all those who have rejected Christ. Now, let's move forward. Verse 50. But I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Why is Jesus distressed? This word distressed, it means great anguish. It means to be pressed in or squeezed under great pressure. It's the word that's used in the Bible to describe a city that is surrounded or under siege. And so Jesus is under siege, overwhelmed by this baptism that he has before him. Now... In the face of this baptism, the cross, in the face of the full wrath of God that he's got before him, in the face of all this, he says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. In other words, he's speaking of it as he's received it. It's his. He knows it's his duty. He knows that he will fulfill it. He says, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. In other words, he doesn't say how distressed I am that it may or may not be accomplished or that I might accomplish it, but he knows what he has to do. He's received his orders from his father. He has he has owned it received it and will fulfill it. And so there is a certain definite accomplishment in his statement that this baptism lays before him. Jesus said himself in Mark chapter 10, he said, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, he already knows his life will be a ransom. Jesus, the one, the Messiah, In Him is found an infinite willingness to receive, to pardon, to justify, to deliver the souls of men from hell. In other words, in light of all that He has before Him, just see that, yes, He says He's bringing fire. And yes, this baptism is before Him. But look at His resolve to accomplish this. And for who? Who is the recipient of this baptism that's before Him? Those who receive Him. Now let's look at this that's distressing Him. Remember back in, uh, all throughout the the New Testament, there's allusions of the, the strain that was upon Jesus, maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane, or as He looked towards the cross. In Mark 14, the Bible says, And then He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, He says to His disciples, even unto death. He says, now stay here and watch. And he went a little further and he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. But without even breathing, he says, but nevertheless, that your will be done, Lord, your will. That he's willing to go forward. But then he came and he found them sleeping. 
See, there's the ones that are closest to Him. There's the ones that, that have spent the most time with Him. There's the ones who, who would know better than anyone else. And there they are sleeping. And He says, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? In other words, do you see the willingness of God to, to go forward and to take upon Himself this baptism for people who are so fickle and so flippant that even one hour is too much to wait? Luke 22, the Bible says that the agony that came upon him in the garden, he prayed even more earnestly and then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You see, the obvious fact about Jesus is that he is far more willing to save us than we are to be saved. You see, that that Jesus is so resolved, he's so resolute in what it is he has to do, and yet we as His people can come in here this morning and freely confess that we know things we ought to do. We've already received all the grace that it would take to do it, and yet we don't. And you see, His willingness and our reluctance ought to stand in stark contrast this morning as we look at who our Savior is and what He came to accomplish So there's suffering in the work of Jesus. But there's also separation. Look at verse 51. Do you suppose that I have come to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. Another very popular, wonderful uh, greeting card verse that you would find all over the place. Isaiah 9, 6, the Bible says, again, I just like to follow up with things that we know very well especially at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6, and His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We love that. We love Psalm 72. And in His days the righteous shall flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. We love that. That's so good. These things I have spoken to you that in me my people may have peace. John 16, 33. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus said, but no... You suppose that I've come to give peace, but I haven't. I've come to bring division. I tell you, not at all. I tell you, not at all, but division. Now, what what does this mean? Is Jesus the Prince of Peace or the Prince of Division? I mean, what's going on here? Is the Bible in, in unison here? Is there some contradiction maybe? Well, of course not. You have to understand what Jesus is saying and who He's talking to. See, there's peace for those who receive Him. There's division with those who don't. There's a a division between the haves and the have-nots as it pertains to salvation, as it pertains to the gospel, as it pertains to His mission here. Look at verse 52. From now on, If five live in one house, there'll be division. Three against two or two against three. Father will be divided against son or son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. So there's going to be all this division. This is just uh, the the finality or the the coming of of what Jesus has, has, has brought to this earth. It's been predicted from the Old Testament in Micah 7. The Bible says, For sons dishonor their father. Daughter will rise up against mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the man of his own household. In John 7, verse 43, Jesus performed miracles 
before a crowd of people, their response was that there was division among them because of him. See, Jesus comes, fulfills prophecy. The, the Jews knew that division was coming. They didn't understand exactly how it was coming. Jesus comes, fulfills prophecy, and everywhere he went and everything he did, there was division. I mean, Jesus, he, he heals on the Sabbath in John chapter 9. And the Bible says, and there was division among them. And the very next verse says, and then they sought to kill him or to stone him. That here Jesus is doing all these wonderful things, giving signs that he is the one and only God sent from heaven. And people reject that. People seek to kill him. People are unhappy with the way in which he is doing the things that God sent him to do. And so it causes division. Division is something that Jesus has been teaching us right here through John, I mean Luke chapter 12. Remember last week we talked about the servants. The servants fell into two categories. You have faithful servants and unfaithful servants. And it's only two categories. Now there's subcategories within those, but you're either faithful or unfaithful. The Bible said about the faithful, verse 42. Who then is the faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household? To give them portion, their portion of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all he has. God will reward the faithful servant. He says, he says don't fear little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's going to give you the kingdom. So you want to be found faithful. But then he spends a lot of time describing the unfaithful. He says, first of all, amongst the unfaithful, there are those who are just blatant rejectors. He describes them in verse 45. He said, but if their servant says in his heart, his master is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat the male servants and the female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk, What's the result? Verse 46. The master of that servant will come and on that day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion among the unbelievers. So you have the blatant rejecter. But then you have the indifferent, the hard-hearted, the pretender, the hypocrite, if you will. Verse 47. This one Jesus describes as that servant who knew his master's will but did not prepare himself or do according to his will, he shall be beaten with many stripes. So amongst the unfaithful, you have those that are indifferent or hard-hearted. And then there are those who are ignorant. They're not saved. They're, just, they're ignorant of the will of God. In verse 80 or verse 48, the Bible says about these unfaithful servants, but he... But he who, do not, who did not know yet committed the things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few, but beaten none, nonetheless. In other words, there's, there's these different types of unfaithful servants, but they're all unfaithful. And there's only one type of faithful servant, and that's the one that's about the father's business when he returns. And it's division, you see? He's talking to thousands of people and he's saying everyone's going to fall into one of two groups, faithful or unfaithful. And so that's the work of Jesus, to come and to bring fire, to bring the wrath of God and the judgment of God to bear upon this earth to purify out those who are faithful from those who are unfaithful. Then we see the witness of Jesus, verse 54. Then he also said to the multitudes, now notice he's shifted gears. Now he's speaking to all the people that are before him. And he says, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, 
there will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites. You can discern the faiths of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern the time? So Jesus now looks out into the crowd and he says, Isn't it interesting that you're so good at predicting the weather? That you can look at the clouds and you can feel the wind and you can predict what the weather's going to do. But what a hypocrite. What a group of hypocrites you are that in the midst of all your discerning, you cannot even discern the time that is very much before you in this very moment. See, to be a hypocrite, again, is to, it's to lie about who you really are. It's to, it's to be fraudulent, to pretend to be something that you're not. And their hypocrisy that Jesus is referring to is that they use this marginal evidence to come to conclusions that they feel so secure in while they deny the overwhelming evidence that the Son of God is standing right before them. In other words, they're looking at clouds and feeling wind. And God is right there in front of them who has performed unspeakable miracle after miracle after miracle. He's shown them sign after sign after sign. And they reject the obvious. They refuse to believe. They refuse to discern what is right there in front of them. All the miracles, all the healings, all the signs, and yet reject it. You know, not a week goes by in my life, not one week goes by that I don't encounter someone And as I am am talking to them about faith, as I am sharing the gospel with them, and I'm pointing out to them a multitude of ways that I can say, can't you see Jesus in this? Can't you see God in this? How do you deny this? How do you deny that? And they look at me as if I'm from another planet. But you know what they'll do? They'll go home and they'll watch the weatherman and they'll get dressed according to what he says. That is stupid. Why not believe the one who controls the weather, who designed the whole system, who holds the universe in his hands? How much more obvious does he need to be? It's interesting to me. It's so interesting that Jesus would point out this one particular area that they find confidence in. Because this is the one area the Bible makes such a clear issue about being remarkably uh, wonderful at showing the God who created the world. In, in other words, it's, it's, it's in creation that God is so obvious. And it's the very creation that they're using to deny the Creator. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that the, the heavens declare the glory of God? What did Paul say in Romans chapter 1? For since the creation of the world, all of his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. They're just futile. They're hypocrites. And their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, it's like, Every time I I go to the zoo, I love to go to the zoo. And whenever I'm at the zoo, I always have the same sort of dual experience. On one hand, I can't help but walk around the zoo and be amazed at what God has done. 
And I just look at the variety of animals. I look at the intricacy and the detail of all of his design. And I just wonder at that. And I just think, God, you are so amazing. You're so amazing. But then I see all these other people around me who are clueless as to what they're looking at. They just think that this all just randomly happened. And they're standing there going, can't you believe? Isn't this amazing? Look at this. It just happened this way. And I just think, really? That's what you see? You see just an accident that gave the zebra his stripes or the anteater his nose or the giraffe his neck? That it just happened that way? I mean, wouldn't life experience tell you that apart from a sovereign, wonderful creator, that things would be bland and they would look the same? I mean, even, even if you could somehow bring evolution into uh, some, some system by where it made sense, it would certainly produce such a bland existence. And yet we live in this unbelievable creation that bears witness of a God who created it. And Jesus says, how is it that you find such confidence in predicting the weather? In John chapter 3, the Bible says this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. You know, there's one thing about light. Light is, uh, is, is obvious especially when light comes into darkness. You can't deny the fact that light has entered into darkness. And the Bible says that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light. And why would they do that? Because their deeds were evil. In other words, because they refused to admit the fact that their deeds were evil, because they, they clung to their evil deeds, that they wanted to reject the obvious nature that light has entered and pierced into the darkness. And so we see the, the work of Jesus... We see the, the witness of Jesus and then the warning. So Jesus says in verse 40 and 57, He says, Yes, and why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? He says, When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, make every effort along the way to settle with him. In other words, parents, if, if, you, if you have a a wayward child who's apart from Christ, pay close attention here. Jesus asked a question that we ought to ask, that we ought to pose. Why, even of yourselves, do you not judge what is right? In other words, based on all the evidence around you, based on the fact that everyone that I know that lives apart from Christ, and, and I begin to talk with them about, well, Okay, so you, you think that uh, I have committed my life to a fairy tale. You think that because you've grown up in a Christian home that you were forced to go to church as a child so you've rejected all that and chosen to do things your own way. Whatever reason you've come up with for whatever it is that you would uh, say that you believe in, here's the question Jesus is saying. So how's that working for you? How's it going? And the answer is always the same. You see, because it doesn't matter how externally uh, successful you are. It doesn't matter what your 401k is. It doesn't matter, you know, wh whether you have good health or bad health. All those things are, are certainly wonderful things that can affect your circumstances. But here's at the end of the day, how are you doing in the peace department? 
I mean, don't you wonder why you're here, what your purpose is, what all this is about? Don't you search and cling to try to find meaning in this life? I mean, how's it going for you? See, it's, it's not. It's not. And one of the things that, that we need to do is we just need to look people in the eye and just say, Hey, you know, I understand that you, you've got all these reasons why you believe all these things you believe, but how's it working for you? I mean, why is it that this morning this place is filled with people who right now are walking through excruciatingly difficult seasons of life and yet they find joy and yet they are, they're ever more faithful to their Heavenly Father? Why? Explain that. You see, apart from a Savior who's placed His Spirit within them, you cannot... You cannot, you cannot explain the, the generosity that this place exudes. You cannot explain the transformation of, of all of the, the drunks and the drug addicts and the adulterers and the blasphemers who gather here every Sunday and worship God. How did that happen? It's obvious. We didn't just decide that maybe this would be a better way to live. God intervened. He brought division and fire. And we found ourselves unfaithful. But He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And now we are transformed. And so Jesus says, as you go, you need to, you need to settle your accounts with Him. Remember, He's talking to this multitude. And He says, as you're going... He's coming. And you, as you live, every day that you live, that's one day you'll never get back. And you're playing this game about, well, I'll wait till tomorrow. I'll wait till next week. I'll wait till... And He's already taught them about the return. He's already taught them about the day of the Lord that's going to come like a thief in the night. He's already told them that there's no way to know. But He knows that He's speaking to a people who live in denial. A people who will convince themselves that even what they know is true won't happen today or I won't get caught or somehow it'll be okay. And He says, you need to settle. Settle your account. Because I've come to bring fire. Fire. He says, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid the very last might. In other words, that every single cent, that if you fail to reconcile your debt with this judge, that it will cost you everything, that justice will be made real before every single one of us. Justice is coming. But we want to we wanna wait. We want to deny. We want to scheme and convince ourselves. And the writer of Hebrews says that as it is appointed to men once to die, but after that there's the judgment. The judgment is coming. So what is the issue Jesus is driving at? Well, let me tell you what the issue is not. The issue is not guilt. Notice Jesus doesn't say anything about guilt, does he? Why? Well, that's simple. 
Because everyone he's talking to is guilty. Everyone I'm talking to is guilty. Everyone you're listening to right now is guilty. That's, that's a given. We're all guilty. Romans chapter 3 says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7 says there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. 1 John 1 8 says that if we, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The issue here is not guilt. What is the issue? The issue is timing. Jesus already said, how is it that you don't discern the time? What is the time? Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Even in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. That it will come to an end. That there will be a day that I will no longer, I will no longer put my spirit upon men. See, from the beginning, the message has always been urgent, has it not? It's always been urgent. John the Baptist shows up. He comes on the scene. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't say, repent when you get around to it, or repent when you feel like it, or repent when you realize you need to. He says, repent now. Now is the time. Don't wait. Mark chapter 1. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what did Jesus say in his inauguration? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is now at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, it's always been a a message of urgency. It's always been an issue of time. There's no... Jesus never said, if you're guilty, if you have need... We all are guilty. We all have need. But the problem is timing. The problem is we want to push back. We want to... You see, the, the very people that crucified Christ, were what were they waiting for? They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the one sent from God. They've been waiting for Him and hoping for Him. And they've been teaching their children to recite the Shema and to wait for God to send the One who would bring peace on earth. And then He comes and they reject Him and crucify Him. Why? You see, they had one huge problem with what He had to say. And that was, He said, you're evil. They didn't like that. They'd be okay with everything else, but they didn't like that. See, their deeds were evil and they didn't want to change. They didn't want to admit that. And there's there's still that spirit all throughout this earth today that we want to wait to do what we know we ought to do. And even us in this room that are redeemed. Why is it? Why is it that we all can say, Yes, Lord, I know you've been dealing with me about this one thing. But I haven't done it. I haven't moved. Why? Because we resist. We resist the timing. We resist the urgency. We always can convince ourselves that tomorrow would be a better day. That if we just wait, we don't know enough. We, we need to learn something else or talk to someone else or get enough of this or wait for just the... Why do we just do it? 
Do what the Lord has spoken to you and called you to do. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, right now, today is the day. Today is the day. Maybe today is the day. Today is the day you, you've, you've walked in here with a broken marriage for the last time. You're sick and tired of it. You know you don't communicate to your wife the way you should. Or she knows that she's not uh, doing the things that she ought to do. You, you know. But you sit there and you deny it and you blame and you cast judgment and you come up with all these reasons and away you go. And the next week, here you are again, broken again. And then you say, God, give me ears to hear. But when you speak, Lord, I may or may not listen. What would happen if we corporately today just did what we know we ought to do today? But, but. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor. But I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I know. But you don't know what's going to happen anyway. So what difference does it make? Why not, why not stop being a hypocrite and believing the weatherman and let's believe the gospel. Let's believe the man from God. Let's believe the one who knows all things. Let's believe the one who knows everything about us and yet still loves us. Let's believe him. You see, did he come to bring peace? Most definitely to those who believe in him. Now, on the other side of the aisle, for all the unfaithful servants, there's no peace. And so today... If you're apart from Him, why? What are you waiting for? What is it that you have convinced yourself needs to happen or that you need to do? The message is urgent. The day of the Lord's coming like a thief in the night. But what about for us who are saved? What are we waiting for? Why won't we believe Him at His Word? Why won't we trust Him at what He says? In John chapter 1, the Bible says that He was in the world and the world was made through Him. The whole world was made through Him. But the world did not know Him. He came to His own. Here's Jesus standing before these people. He is in front of them and he is speaking these words directly out of the mouth of God. They're hearing them with their ears. The one who made the world. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But there's grace. That's not the end of the story. The next verse says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed he he made a family, he ushered them in through the spirit of adoption to those who believe in his name.
I don't know where you are this morning. But I plead with you. I plead with you to heed the words of our Lord. Receive Him if you do not know Him. And if you are His children, if you're His son or His daughter this morning, won't you be obedient to your Father in light of what He's done? Is there peace in your life today? Is there? What if you do today what you know God's been telling you to do? Let's stand, bow our heads, and close our eyes for a moment of invitation. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to bless our time of invitation and then we'll open the altar and I invite you to come and and kneel down and pray. And if I can pray for you, if one of the pastors can pray for you, we're here, we'd love to do that. If you'd like to come and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you'd like to receive that grace, that right to be called His child, then you come this morning and receive Him. If you'd like to come and plant your family here in this fellowship and be a part of what God is doing, then this morning you come. If you'd like to come and kneel and surrender your stubbornness in your family or with your children or with each other or at your job or whatever it is that He's been speaking to you about, you come and kneel before your Heavenly Father and confess to Him, Lord, today, today I'm listening, I'm responding what you've said. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you give us, Lord, to be reminded of the good and gracious God that you are. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you took the baptism that we couldn't take, Lord, that the full fury, the wrath of God fell upon you, Lord, that we deserved. So, Lord, we stand today cleansed and forgiven. We stand today with the amazing privilege of knowing that we're your children. Lord God, keep us from a hard heart. Keep us, Lord God, from willful disobedience against that which you've already spoken to us, Lord. Father, I thank you for those in this room who don't know you, that today they have an opportunity to receive you as Lord. And God, what that will accomplish in their life is nothing short of miraculous. So, Father, we ask that whatever you desire to be done now in this time would happen for your glory in Jesus' name.